Welcome to Thinking Too Hard About Anime, an episode-by-episode discussion of a beloved animated series. It's a little bit of history, a little bit of analysis, and a lot of over-examining the Japanese cartoons we love so much. I am your co-host, Aaron J. Shelton, and with me, as always, is... Noah Carden. And we are continuing our exploration of Cowboy Bebop uh, with something a little different because we are covering both Session 12 and Session 13, uh, Jupiter Jazz, Part 1 and 2. The synopsis for this episode is... There's a lot of stuff. I'll I'll, I'll hit the beats. Um, Faye leaves the Bebop to hang out, essentially hang out on Callisto, a moon of Jupiter. Uh, While there, Spike thinks that his lost love Julia is there, so he goes to investigate, but he finds Vicious instead. Uh, Jet's a reluctant dad to try and hunt them down. Uh, But the new character we meet is Gren, who is a former comrade of Vicious uh, during the war on Titan. Uh, and Gren has lured Vicious there to get answers about their past. Yeah, that's pretty spot on, I think. Mm-hmm. So these episodes were written by Keiko Nobumoto, um, and the first part was directed by Yoshiyuki Takei, and the second part was directed by Ikuru Sato. Gren, the new character for these two episodes, uh, is portrayed by in Japanese by Kenyu Horouchi, who is probably best known for playing Brad Pitt, for one. The Japanese dub voice for Brad Pitt. Wow. And he's also played the Japanese voice for Raiden in the Metal Gear Solid franchise. And N in their recent adaptation of Doro Hidoro. Uh, uh, and I just watched this weeks ago. Why can't I remember this character's name? <laughs> He's got like a like a kind of skull lower face mask. He's got like mushrooms and stuff. Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And in English, he's portrayed by David A. Thomas. Not that Dave Thomas, a different Dave Thomas. <laughs> who is also known for playing the Sorrow in Metal Gear Solid 3 and the Barbarian in Diablo 2. When I looked him up, he doesn't have a whole lot of credits and those are probably the ones that m- more people would recognize than some of the others so, so this is this is the ro- one role that has a name and not just the title yeah pretty much yes yeah, like they got the heavy hitters for for, for this episode um yeah. so general thoughts about this episode i'm i'm honestly still kind of not meh because I think these are good, solid episodes that do a lot of what we've seen before. Mm-hmm. But there's, they're not, on the surface, they're not like really, they don't stand out that much I, I, to me. Yeah, like Jupiter Jazz is, it's not a, it's not a bad set of episodes, like, like you're saying. It's still a really good, solid story. And Cowboy Bebop, it's just, there's just something about it that it just, you know, it doesn't make as big of an impact as some of the other episodes. Like, especially even talking about the episodes that focus on, like, the whole Spike Vicious Julia thing throughout the story. Ballad of Fallen Angels and the Real Folk Blues, the sort of beginning and end of that story or that arc throughout the, the show have much more impact, it feels, than Jupiter Jazz. Jupiter Jazz kind of feels like a, hey, don't forget about this character. And we do get like a little bit more of who Julia is. I think this might actually be the first time we hear her in the show. Uh, Aside from like humming, yes, I think. Which her English voice actress is uh, Mary Elizabeth McGlynn. I th- we've talked about her before when she first appeared as uh, uh, Maria the- Murdoch. Maria Murdoch. Yeah, this is like the first time we, we see we hear her as Julia, and we we get a little bit of like we get a little bit of like the Spike Vicious and Julia's relationship a little bit more not, in, in these flashbacks. It feels yeah, like. not a ton, but also it's you know memory versus how they actually present the information. Yeah. Yeah, like it's it's like kind of key important points that kind of sync up with the stuff that happens in Jupiter Jazz. I think we should. Do you want to go ahead and we'll, we'll go ahead and address Gren? Okay. So Gren is uh, 
and and part of the rub is like the proper terminology to use mm-hmm. because Gren is was born male, um, mm-hmm. served in the military with Vicious during the Battle of Titan. At the end of part one and the beginning of part two, we discover that Gren uh, became addicted to drugs, and these drugs had side effects that changed his uh, hormones. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of part one, we he has breast, and I'll say that like I we are not experts uh, no. uh, on this, uh, so if we use improper terminology, uh, we apologize, um, and it is not from a place of maliciousness. Um, Right. The show also doesn't give you the information you need or the identifier that we should use. Um, but I think we came up that that it the most likely thing is that it was gynecomastia. Uh, yes. So it's gynecomastia, which is the growth of breast tissue in a masculine body. I, I guess would would probably be the the easiest way of describing it. Um, yeah, it's just. Certain, you can actually see this uh, with certain types of steroid use, things like that. It it happens. Um, so it's just a side effect of whatever the the sort of drugs or, or uh, it it kind of ties into a later point. The the drugs or a like nano machines that were being used uh, during Titan, the the war on Titan, and the sort of experiments that went on afterwards. Um, but yeah, like we don't want to purposely uh, offend or use the wrong terminology. But like Aaron was saying, there's we we don't get a whole lot of information about Gren and what pronouns like they prefer and her how they identify. They I mean, do kind of say at one point when it's revealed that they say that they're both and neither man or woman. A sort of non-binary kind of thing going on there, but we don't ever really hear any other pronouns other than like he, him when referring to Gren. So we're not really sure where to to go from there using either like neutral pronouns or he, him would probably be the most in line with what we know from the show. But if there's any sort of disagreement with that, we, we totally understand and we, we do not mean any sort of offense there. I think that's why we're treading so yeah, lightly with it because <laughs> because it's you. So we talked about this before the show. You had mentioned that the reveal of Gren, mm-hmm. it's it's shock value, right? That that I think we can say that's def, that's the intent of it. And I yes. like honestly, I think this is the first time we've seen bare breast in Cowboy Bebop or since. Yes, in, in detail. Like I think there's yeah. been a couple points where like you know. Spike, not Spike, but Jet is talking to like an old cop buddy or something like that. And they're looking at a girly mag or something along those lines. But it's always super low detail. Just kind of you can just kind of you can tell what he's looking at without it being explicit. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time that we do get a detailed character image of of Bress. But like like you were saying, it's it's sort of played for a, a shock value kind of thing. And given, you know, the show is made in the 90s it was 20 years ago now and we've come a long way or at least i hope we have come a long way <laughs> in in representation of you know trans and and non gender conforming characters and things like that and it's i don't think like it, again it's been, it's plays for kind of a shock value but i don't think it's necessarily played for a a malicious intent it is just sort of it happens and then it's kind of used as a plot device in the second part of the episode, but yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to talk about. <laughs> it, it it's, it's tricky. Cause like, I don't think there was malicious intent. There's definitely some stereotyping. Again, the yes. reveal, the reveal for shock is like, that's, that's garbage old trope that we need to get rid of. Yes, um, definitely. But I think there, there might have been, whether conscious or subconscious, there might've been some symbolism to it. Um, okay. and that sort of, uh, if I can go into my next, my next point, we'll deal with this. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about middles uh, in second acts. So okay. as we talked about before, this wasn't this wasn't a show that went into seasons. You know, mm-hmm. they went through the whole entirety of of twenty six episodes, and they break up episode twelve and thirteen 
ostensibly the middle of the series, if you take it as a whole. They split into two parts, and I, you know, that's, I feel like that's intentional. They were actually trying to do a, a middle section uh, for right. the show. Um, and so I'm going to get a little bit into like story theory and screenwriting practice uh, to sort of, exp- which might, uh, ex- which might explain why they went with Grin in that direction, or it might be a coincidence, or it might be some sort of co- subconscious thing. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll let you, the audience, be the judge. <laughs> um, in plays, in shows, uh, most things have a three-act structure, uh, one, two, and three. Uh, the middle, the first part is the setup, the middle is the conflict, uh, and the third part is the resolution. And second acts in movies, let alone and long-form storytelling are really hard. A lo- a, like a sort of generic note within screenwriting can be like, oh, well, the second act drags. Well, it drags because it's not as easily or as defined as a first act or a second act. First act has like several moving parts that you can get to. Third act sort of fills in it. So it's all the exciting bits at the mm-hmm. end. Um, right. So um, if you've ever thought about writing a, a script... Um, you've probably run into the name Sid Field. Uh, Sid Field is a, a teacher. Uh, he wrote a book called Screenplay that was published in 1978, and there's been several revision, uh, revisions of it. Uh, and for decades, this was like the go-to book for screenwriters. And in that book, Sid Field talks about how, yeah, the second act drags. Why does it drag? Why, why is it difficult to maintain? And he sort of realized that, you know, you have your act one break and your act two break. Um, and he realized that there was actually another sort of semi-act break in the middle of act two, which he, you know, inventively called the midpoint. Oh, huh. um, clever. And so act two is the main character has a goal and it's them trying to achieve that goal. And the end of act two is like usually them achieving it, but realizing that's not what they need or... They give up or they give up kind of thing. And then act three is them like, nope, I'm going to go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the midpoint, there, there's a few things that it can be successfully um, within structure. But the midpoint is usually a dramatic turn or some sort of new information that is given to the character. Um, so the char- so the mid- so the- so the protagonist's goal does not change, but they are given new information, some sort of new element that helps them on their way, a change of tactics. When I taught screenwriting, I love to use Die Hard as an example. Like we studied the fuck mm-hmm. out of it just because it is, to me, it is structurally perfect and it's super fun to watch. Yeah, totally. Um, so the midpoint, so for, as an example in Die Hard, the midpoint would be uh, John McClane. The midpoint for that would be when the cops arrive. John McClane is still trying to like save his wife and help the other uh, hostages but it's this sort of false victory with new players come in. There's new elements where it's like, oh, the cops are here. Cool. I can relax. Uh, he learns that he cannot. But at that point in time, his strategy has changed. Uh, also, I, I, I think this is Field. He also talks about how a midpoint can also be a reaffirmation of intent. The protagonist is given a chance to leave the adventure, uh, but decides not to take it. And uh, my again, my schoolyard example of this was the Goonies. And when they have that wishing well scene, uh, when they look up the wishing well, they see that the friends are there. They're like, hey, we can get. Hey, guys, we'll get you out. What, what are you doing down there? But they the, the, the titular Goonies decide to no, we're going to keep going on this adventure. We're not going to escape. So some of that. So not a ton of that has to do with this episode. You can sort of say Spike and Faye leaving sort of both of them making decisions and going through an experience that helps them to decide to stay on this path with the bebop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of that might might have play. But I think the big thing, and this involves Gren, uh, is we need to look to Joseph Campbell. So Joseph Campbell, if you don't know, he he's a, his technical area of expertise is comparative mythology. Uh, but he wrote several books. One book was A Hero of a Thousand Faces, talking about how in all these different societies, we tell the same story, um, which he called the monomyth. So all these legends, all these religions, they're telling similar stories. They're just adding different details to it. 
Right. And according to Campbell, the midpoint of a story is what he defined as the meeting with the goddess. It is a moment where the protagonist uh, is able to gain some sort of knowledge or power to help the journey ahead. Um, it can be sometimes representative of, a, of meeting a mystical force or meeting some sort of outside force. It's also symbolic sometimes, particularly if that particular is male. Uh, you know, meeting a goddess, a female figure, uh, and then becoming whole. It's a meeting of masculine and feminine sides, which creates a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and metaphysically, it can also be, but it's about going down into your sub subconscious, removing your hangups and doubts. You're clearing the, the first part of your journey is you clearing the way, making yourself prepared to receive the goddess. Um, so some movie examples, uh, you know, Luke meeting Leia, in, in A New Hope, uh, Frodo meeting Galadriel in uh, Fellowship of the Rings, you know, gaining, they both gain a companion or they gain knowledge that helps them on their journey. Right, right. And I think, again, I can't say whether intent was here, um, but I think this can apply to Gren. I think Gren is the goddess in this situation for both Faye and Spike. Um, in part one, Faye has like a bit of a therapy session. Yeah. Uh, she says, you know what? It's better to be alone whenever I, I'm with, you know, I can't trust people. They always let me down. It's better to be truly alone instead of, you know, feeling alone in a crowd. And Gren sees right through her. It's like, no, you no, you care about people. You just don't want them. You, you, you don't, you don't want to get hurt because that's what happens when you care about people. Um, so you run away. You make them not want to get close to you. And for Faye, I think the first half of the series, Faye is very much, I'm I'm the wind. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I am everywhere. I'm very fickle. And then towards the later half, she sort of becomes more of a member. She's she's not as Fujiko-y. Yeah, she, she still has her, her kind of flighty behaviors and stuff like that, but... More often times than not, she she is there with the rest of the crew. And in and yeah, and in Spike's case, I think his meeting with Gren is one. I think it's it's a bit of foreshadowing. Hey, here's what happens when you mess with Vicious when you try to you know get back to it. Here's what dwelling on the past too much and not mm -hmm. moving on does to you. And he also he also gets information from Gren about Julia. Nothing too specific but it's like julia's out there um it was never julia is looking for you but it's just that no, no julia still thinks of you like fondly yeah julia was here like two years ago and she was a companion to gren for a bit and then she she's gone now she's left and she's gone someplace else but yes yeah, she's still out of she's still out there somewhere and she is still always talking about Spike and how much she cares for him and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's exactly. It's a confirmation that, that Julia is alive and, and out there. Again, middles are hard. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I can see... Do they have to go this route? Maybe not. Probably, probably not. But, like, there's... I don't want to say justification. Yeah. For how... For Gren... And how Gren is is shown or treated as a character. Um, again, I do I do think a large part of that is just as a reveal, as a shock value thing. Yeah, there's there's that, and there's also the sort of disguise moment towards the end of the the two parts where Gren puts on a a dress and tells Vicious that a woman is going to meet him, and then reveals themselves. Uh, during the sort of the the drug deal that goes on at the the climax of the episode, um, and and part of it, at least to me, kind of feels like the reason they they may they designed Grand the way that they did is to kind of have that reveal that kind of second reveal and not have to introduce too many more characters. They kind of shortcut it a little bit. I'm not saying you know I, I don't necessarily disagree with the sort of monomyth kind of structure you're talking about there it's something that pattern recognition you can definitely pick out stuff like that in, in a lot of things and whether it was intentional or not you can definitely 
take that interpretation with it. Yeah. yeah, no, now I am definitely like, is that just me? Again, name of the yeah. show. Yeah, no, exactly. It, I think a lot of that is, like you said, it's pattern recognition, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it is interesting that it's there. That why yeah. they chose this particular that this these episodes in this series to be here in the middle where it right. sort of fits in. That's it's interesting, whether yeah, intentional totally. or unintentional. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I was I had tried to do a little reading to see if I could find any other sort of interpretations on um, this episode, primarily those from a you know a non cis het perspective like myself um and i i can't say i was successful in that search but i have found a couple points where they equivalate gren having effectively there's there's a camaraderie or there was a camaraderie between gren and vicious during the titan war and gren talks about not being interested in women in the first episode and there possibly being a sort of like a, a some sort of romantic feelings or something along those lines, something more than just a friendship that Gren was feeling towards Vicious before Vicious betrayed Gren, sold sold them down the river after the Titan War and things like that, and using Gren's appearance as sort of both a masculine and feminine representation of relationships. I, again, I don't know. If that is intended or if that's, again, just kind of, you know, pattern recognition and and trying to make sense of certain relationships in in the episode, kind of seeing what you want to see. I think I have a few more little baby pieces of evidence, perhaps. During the flashbacks to the Titan, Gren has marks under their eyes Mm -hmm. um, and a very certain hairstyle. And I'm like, oh, that's Alita Battle Angel. Okay. The Alita Battle Angel look. Even during those scenes, there's a bit of a feminine aspect that they gave to her, to them. Right. And also, yeah, yeah, I can, I can, yeah, now now that you mentioned it, I totally see it. Yes. So, Gren, again, I could be seeing things. Gren's ship to me felt like a combination of Faye and Spike's ship, of the swordfish and hammerhead. I I know the pod is all the same, but Mm -hmm. so. Gren's ship has like the little widgets, the arms that the hammer, not hammerhead, the, sorry, red, yeah, red tail. Um, a combination of the red tail and swordfish. Cause it, it yeah, Gren's ship has the arms like the red tail where the middle of Gren's ship kind of resembles the, uh, I guess the exhaust in the swordfish, mm. the sort of cir- half circle fin that are, for lack of a better term, breaks. Right, yeah. Um, and again, I, I could be looking far, you know, way, way deep into it, but I, but everything is designed. Everything is intentional and they had to build a new ship. So I, they're playing with the idea of the masculine and feminine. Yes, definitely. Uh, That's, that's definitely a, I mean, it's most explicit with grand, but, uh, blue crow, the city we see in this episode on Callisto, like they talk about how there's only men here. We see some some characters that are uh, in drag. Uh, when when Spike goes looking for a Julia, he finds a person that calls themselves Julius, and they are a a, a masculine but cross dressing in feminine clothing as the long wig and things like that. And this town is is very it it like you said it, it plays with gender and the expression of that. Uh, in a lot of ways, and and again, it being twenty years old, how how good of a representation that is is you know it probably doesn't hold up nowadays. Um, like I don't think there's an intended malice there, but there's also a not a full and proper understanding of those kind of ideas, and that I think if this was made closer to today. We would, you know, it may not be portrayed in some of the fashion that it is. It's at the same time, it's also way better than a lot of anime at the time. In the portrayal of like LGBTQ. Yes. Um, 
I know we've talked about it a bunch of times, but Shinichiro Watanabe really, really, really wanted to make this as multicultural, multifaceted a sort of show and like the cultures and subcultures and and people represented therein. And, you know, it's not always going to be 100%, but there is, it feels like that there's at least a an attempt. And most of the time that attempt is made in good faith or good, you know, they're trying to present it in a, a positive or at least a non-harmful way. So the story takes place on a moon of Jupiter called mm-hmm. Callisto. And I, I went back to school. I, I, lear- I remembered the, the Greek myth of Callisto. Okay. Uh, which I think it has a, it has a little, there's a little bit. There's a little bit in it. There's, it's a story of betrayal um, okay. and, tra- and transformation. Uh, so Callisto was a nymph uh, who was, and so nymphs traditionally are uh, personifications of nature. Uh, not really gods, middlemen between mortals and gods, I guess. Okay. Um, and the nymphs usually served a certain god. Uh, Callisto served Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and the moon. Um, so all the nymphs under Artemis' rule swore to be to remain virgins. Zeus came down and ruined everything with his horribleness, uh, so, and she became pregnant. Uh, and she got kicked out of uh, that group. Then Hera found out Turned Callisto into a bear uh, after her son had... I'm assuming after her son was born, because in the future, uh, as she was a bear in the woods, her son almost killed her. But then, I don't uh, I don't think... I don't remember who did this. But basically, they turned Callisto... They're like, uh, we're going to save you. Uh, you're stars now. And that's how we have the constellation Ursa Major. Ah. Mm-hmm. Or the Big Dipper, as they say. Yes? Yes. Yes. So... Eh? <laughs> kind of. Yeah, a little, a little bit. I mean, there's, God, there's so much betrayal in Greek myth, mythology. Oh, yeah. They love so, it. They love that shit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they can't get enough of it. Um, so, you know, there's, I mean, there's a wee bi- baby bit of connection there. No one turned into a bear this episode, so. Um, but I just, yeah, I'm like, yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a thread there to it. And it's a, it was also, oh, this myth went in a way different direction than I thought it would. <laughs> For someone becoming stars. Yeah. Would you like to hear the prototype version of this episode? Uh, Yes, I would. Okay. So referring to my handy dandy book here. Uh, So this was originally My Funny Valentine, part one and part two. Oh, Um, they were going to do Phase Origins as two parts. So they just changed the title is, is what I'm getting here. So episode 12, My Funny Valentine, part one. A story about the androgynous Gren, as well as Spike's and Vicious's past. Information about Julia comes in, the Bebop clue splits up, two stories progress simultaneously, and they become one at the end. Faye meets Gren, but he has a bounty on the head. And then in episode 13, My Funny Valentine, part two, the conclusion of the previous story. As a lead-in to the second half of the series, the artificial eye comes up. There's apparently some dreadful secret behind Spike's one artificial eye. Mm, Looking through the rest of these descriptions, there's also another part that kind of gets uh, added in here. So the original version of episode 22, The Man from Titan, is an episode about a criminal who's a combat veteran. Has a Vietnam story feel to it. We learned that Vicious was a mercenary too. So they basically kind of took that part and just blended it into Gren's character, it feels like. See, when you say all that, this all feels sloppier mm-hmm. than I'm giving than than we may be giving it credit for. Yeah. I mean, this is all like pretty early on when they're coming up with the episodes. And again, these are like four or five sentences at most for the episode, and then they would go in and obviously flesh everything out when it comes to actually writing the script. And, and animating it and all that. So, you know, it could definitely kind of grow from what these original kind of, like, pitches were. Could could this have been done in one part? Because as, as, as is, it seems like the two-parters just, like, well, here's some cliffhangers. Spike gets shot. 
it uh, it definitely Red feels Reveal. like part two goes by a lot quicker than part mm-hmm. one and that if they had just i think they probably could have compressed some of the spike walking around uh blue crow like getting into a fight all that stuff they, they could have kind of compressed that and gotten in the the major parts of part two into the the first episode yeah as much as this is so much centered on spite yeah it's a it's a grand story it, and second to that it's a face story yeah i think it's i would almost say it's almost more of a vicious story mm. but we are learning more about vicious through gren and through the flashbacks and through i guess both kinds of flashbacks both gren's flashbacks and spike's flashbacks we are learning more about vicious and their relationship and then yes Faye is probably like the other character that we kind of get more about because she is the i don't want to say damsel but she is kind of that in this episode they lock her up again they yes. tie her up in handcuffs. they yes and <laughs> i do like chet's little like oh he's that kind of person huh it's like no no you don't know what you're talking about but also, Jet walking around his little Ushanka, like, Russian hat mm-hmm. is very good, I think. Oh, he's probably mad that he had to go buy clothes to go search <laughs> for him. It's like, these kids. Yes. Um, On Vicious, we we learned so much about Vicious and his, if nothing else, his philosophy. Mm-hmm. And his ideas. Uh, his, the person, that's, the person that, uh, that goes along with him on this job, Lynn, uh, it's like... Um, you gotta, you, if you, if you want to survive, you have to betray, which is true mm-hmm. because Lynn, because he doesn't betray, he dies protecting Vicious. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get Vicious's idea of just, he is straight up out for himself, who is useful to him in the moment, you know, which I think is what is alluded to between Vicious and Gren. It's, I need you alive now. If I rat you out, I'm sure Vicious got something out. He had to have gotten something out of ratting out Gren as a spy, mm-hmm. unless Vicious was a spy. I mean, and, it's entirely possible, yeah. And saying like, no, no, not me, this dude. But we, I, and again, sometimes more than Spike, we we get a better sense of who Vicious is, who he is within the organization, mm-hmm. um, and what is what his methods. Are. Yeah, I don't think Vicious isn't a necessarily complicated character. We do learn a lot, a lot about his philosophy and things like that, but I don't think that philosophy is that particularly deep. I think he is just sort of a monster that is willing to use people to his own ends, and he is obviously building up a power play within the Red Dragon triad, but what his goal there is kind of unknown. Like, what is his end game other than taking over the Red Dragon Syndicate. Uh, I mean, yeah, just uh, just do more crimes, I guess. Being non-complicated is such a good reveal mm-hmm. because I think we've been trained to expect when I was a boy, my my father, you know, all, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Like, uh, the thing I think of is in the Warriors mm-hmm. and towards the end where they add, Ajax is the one that, like, started everything off with the Warriors being framed. And towards the end, they're like, hey, why'd you do that? He's like, I don't know. I just like doing stuff like that. And it, it's like it's it's weirdly like a wonderful reveal of no, no, no. There's not some master big master plan. They're not like a tortured person. It's like, no, they're just horrible. Yeah. And that's the reveal. Yeah, fair enough. And there's yeah. And there's, I think uh, occasionally there be there could be something interesting about that. Sort yeah. of character choice. Definitely. So, Jet, in this episode, or these episodes, rather. Uh, I think I think it's interesting, the sort of relationship we see between Spike and Jet at the start of part one, where Jet is... You can kind of tell Jet is a little concerned about Faye and the fact that she obviously ran off with their money, but... Uh, when he and and Spike get into their their fight, when Spike decides to go leave and look for Julia, the way he's animated in this episode, at least the first the first part, uh, 
he's doing all these very big anime emotes uh, in, in his talking and things like that, which I think kind of betray the things he's saying. He is kind of putting on a show to try and get Spike to actually like stay and care. And when he's, you know, he's talking about like, you know, teaming up like three years ago and all this other stuff. I think when he's just kind of saying things, he's just kind of saying things to get a rise out of Spike to kind of get him to stay and, and argue with him. Cause he doesn't want him to go. Cause he knows that if this gets wrapped up in the same kind of situation that happened last time with vicious Spike could get killed it could, you know, and then Jen w- Jet would lose a friend, and he doesn't want to see that happen. And then he kind of cares about Faye to a degree as well, because he does come looking for her, whether intentionally or not. He he gets information about her. I guess he kind of comes to, to Blue Crow looking for information on Julia and Spike, and then that kind of leads him to running into Faye, which he's like, okay, let me go make sure she's all right. He does have the picture of her that he shopped around. True. At yes. one of the bars. I forgot about that. Yes. So he he talks about when when they're sitting in the, the, the spaceships heading back towards the Bebop, he talks about um the only reason he does is to get the, the money back. And when Faye says it was only like twenty thousand Wulongs, he kind of has a oh yeah, I guess it was not that much. Oh well kind of thing. It it feels like He's using it as an excuse because, again, it's there's sort of a, a, you know, obviously a sort of found family aspect to Cowboy Bebop. I think once the crew is together and they are doing their thing, even as dysfunctional as they are, they are sort of a something of a family unit. Yeah. When Spike finally comes back, Jet asks him what he has. Spike says nothing. Just like, come on in. We're about to take off. It's yeah, yeah, Spike. It's. It's the realization of responsibility and the reticence that can happen with it. Because mm-hmm. I, uh, again, as as someone who has done a ton of freelance, um, I imagine bounty hunting is similar, aside from you know space adventures. Um, <laughs> but but like in the sense, it's it's the, the again the word there is the idea. And, and sort of the expectation of of freedom, right? Of a, mm-hmm. of you have because you're not attached to a certain company, you can pick and choose who you work with. You can you, you are free in a degree versus you know, and then free and and then not free in a lot of other ways, um, right? So it's uh, so again becoming a bounty hunter. There's definitely the idea of oh, I can have this easy breezy lifestyle, and then it's jet meeting all these people caring about all these people and be and sort of de facto being older right um, having to look after all these people and trying to keep them all together and i guess you could say this is sort of a a midpoint for jet where it's a re you know additional information a realization of oh well damn i'm the dad <laughs> yeah oh i'm the dad all right <laughs> I mean, from a technical standpoint, uh, in, in some of the space, in the opening and ending space shots, uh, we see warp gates, we see space stations, but we also see a sort of row of elongated mirrors. Uh huh. And I believe that is the first time that we we've seen anything like that. And I know we had some questions about Ganymede and how how the sun gets there. And I think that's the answer to our question. That that might be it. Yeah. That feels so. Those like space mirrors feel they feel kind of Gundam to me, which would make sense because this show was made by Sunrise. And as we talked about in like our very, very first episode, Sunrise is also the company behind the entire Gundam franchise. And they have a lot of like that series or that franchise uses a lot of like 60s and 70s sci fi illustrations as like or like. Illustrations and, like, concept art for, like, space stations and things like that as inspiration. I think that that kind of carries through into Cowboy Bebop, where, you know, you have, like, the giant O'Neill cylinder space colonies, where it's the giant, like, cigar-shaped space station that is spun for gravity, and it has basically a city or, like, you know, suburbia on the inside of it, that kind of thing. Um, 
and like those mirrors are kind of the same technology or in that sort of same sort of concept headspace where it's a bunch of giant floating mirrors out in space that you use to like light up a space colony or planets very very far away so yeah i definitely i could definitely see them using that as a a supplement or an amplification of natural sunlight for like daytime nighttime in colonies and uh planets and stuff like that i think they list uh callisto having a 16 day 16 hour revolution cycle on the the information chart in the actual episode itself okay so 16 days around jupiter 16 hours in a day maybe <laughs> that's what they so there's a a chart where they show like the different moons and things like that in in the episode itself and they do like one for callisto so callisto is in a much like our own moon it's in a locked orbit so its days are the same as its orbital period okay um, so that would be, yeah, 16.7 Earth days. That would probably mm. come out to be about 16, point, 16 days, 16 hours-ish. Okay. So, yeah, I can definitely see them for wanting to have people on a normal kind of typical 24-hour uh, circadian rhythm using mirrors as a, a supplement there. Let's see. And, uh, like, Blue Crow, the city we see, is very, like... Eastern European, Russian kind of influenced, it seems. Like, there's a lot of Cyrillic on, like, road signs and, and street signs and stuff like that. It's got a seedy part of Moscow or something like that kind of feel going on, which is is neat. When Jet goes to the apartment complex, it's a, yeah, it's very, it's kind of brutalist, maybe? There's definitely some, like, 70s vibe to it. Mm-hmm. It almost has, like, a like a screw kind of shape. If you like squared off a screw with the, mm -hmm. the way that the roof has like these big long slants coming down on the, the yeah. exterior of the building rundown mm -hmm. it is sort of what they're, what they were going for. And I think the last thing I have is like the first scene of Faye in the bar mm -hmm. and Gren's playing. And uh, I, I miss <laughs> I had the tinge of like nostalgia of like, oh, I miss being sad in a bar smoking and just being <laughs> able. You can be like kind of left alone yeah. to a degree or or if you're lucky, someone comes up and talks to you um, or depending or unlucky, depending, I guess, depending on who it is and what your current mood is. Yeah, um, totally. I'm just like, oh, I don't. And not just because of 2020. No, but I'm like, but but like I'm but I'm also like. I don't uh, I don't even know if I could do that anymore. Well, for a few reasons, the, <laughs> the smoking thing. Um, but yeah, I just I had a, a tinge of like uh, the past, <laughs> the past. Sometimes you just want to brood. I do sometimes. Yeah, I just want the lights to be low and I don't want, you know, I just want to listen to someone play, man. I'm going to go. through. I just, you know, think about my worries. Yeah. And then not come to any conclusion. But at the at the end, it's like you got to leave the stool sometime. Yeah. Go to a nice dingy jazz bar. The animation in these episodes is I think I think it's some of the best we see. It's definitely like some of the most detailed like character art we get in in the series, I think. And I think part of that is because especially in part one, the actual animation director for the episode is Toshihiro Kawamoto, the character designer. So he took the lead for the first part of Jupiter Jazz, and it, I think it really, really shows with how detailed and high quality like the character uh, models are throughout the episode. Part two is directed by uh, Takahiro Komori, who I am not that familiar with, but... A lot of the stills you can take a take throughout this episode, you could easily just like look at it and it you'd think it'd be a like a production illustration for like, you know, a poster or something like that. It's they just look so crisp and clean throughout the episode. I just I I had to comment on that. Jet's very animated discussion. Um the fight scene that Spike has with the the random thugs. Mm-hmm. 
real quick that that fight scene i think it's probably like the first time we've ever really seen spike mad well they called him vicious yeah they called him vicious and yeah but i think that that's kind of an interesting thing that like that's what it takes to get spike actually angry everything else like he might get a little you know upset or something like that but to put him into a blind rage it you you have to bring up vicious yeah like that's what it takes i think i thought that was a a neat little detail there and then even even when Faye is like laying on the couch the uh well one fan service too like yes. the, the angle they have her at i'm like who would want to draw that yeah who no it's wanna... some it's some crazy perspective there yeah i'm yeah it's yeah just to get the, again to get the animation right of just you know someone sliding down on a couch after mm-hmm. drinking yeah no Slide down on a couch from that angle, like is there's so much going on there that like I do not envy the the animators that that took that on. Oh, they probably loved it. No, uh, well, you know, hey, hopefully, I hope they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> there's a big part of these episodes that gets brought up that ties into the movie, uh, knocking on heaven's door, uh, and that's the Titan War, which apparently was some sort of conflict on. Uh, Jovian moon of Titan, Jovian being a word for Jupiter. Um, and the Mars army was like one of the combatant forces there. It has a sort of mishmash of like Gulf War, World War One uh, kind of aspects to it, where there's like some trench warfare, but it's a desert environment, all that stuff. But characters that show up in the movie, Vincent and Electra, are a part of like special forces that were in the war on Titan. And we learn a little bit more about it that effectively the war on Titan was kind of it was basically what whatever the actual conflict was or the given conflict, it was mainly used as sort of a testing ground for drugs, for nanomachines, all sorts of nasty you know, experimentations on on humans in this this conflict, um, and that kind of comes back in the movie as a a major plot point. And we see Spike, not Spike, uh, Vicious and Gren there, and it, it's just this. As we learn more about it, it becomes this especially kind of tragic thing that you know, whatever the kind of given reason there, it really feels like that the conflict on Titan was more or less just a a, a gigantic experiment that they were just there to be tested upon in this situation and yeah <laughs> it's it's real messed up war bad yes no and, and we've talked about this before many a times where it's here is here's a little snippet of something that gives mm-hmm. you an idea of the larger world that we don't need someone like you don't need ed going the jovian war was this conflict between two factions yeah yeah war war bad <laughs> War, war bad, indeed. Uh, I can give you a, a recipe for a cowboy. Uh, all right, yeah. So, but but we but there aren't any bounty heads here. I mean, <laughs> whiskey with light cream, my good sir. Okay, is that the uh, recipe? <laughs> just about. So, a, a cowboy is a kind of cocktail. Um, it is uh, two parts whiskey to one part half and half. Um, so if you're making a single serving, a two ounce pour of whatever your preferred whiskey or bourbon, what have you, a one ounce pour of half and half, and then you shake that over ice and then serve strained. So you don't want any ice floating in it. And that's pretty much it. It's an incredibly simple cocktail. Um, it's a little unusual in the fact that when you are making cocktails, if you are putting some sort of sweet agent or a sweet um, ingredient in it, typically some like a, a fruit juice or something like that. That's when you want to shake a cocktail. If you are not putting uh, a sweet like uh, fruit juice or something along those lines in it, that's you'll typically stir your cocktails. Now it's obviously not always the the situation. Like you would stir an old fashioned, which has like simple syrup in it but you know if you're making like a a painkiller or a whiskey sour or something like that you're going to be shaking those but 
a cowboy doesn't really have any particularly sweet ingredients. Um, milk does have a slight sweetness to it. It's, you know, incredibly mild, obviously. Like, you don't necessarily think of milk as being sweet, but it does have, you know, it has sugars in it. But yeah, that's, that's sort of the unusual part of this drink is that it's, it's not really a, a you know, a sickeningly sweet like tiki drink or something like that, but you, you still shake it and serve it. And the half and half kind of lengthens the the taste of the drink, the evolution of the drink. So the notes that you would get out of the whiskey kind of, they'll become a little bit milder because you're diluting it and... You'll also be able to pick them out and they'll last a lot longer on your palate because of the sort of dilution and the, the milk there. And the, the half and half will also give it sort of a, a creamier texture, which, you know, can be very nice in a drink. Uh, so there you go. There's my little cocktail corner for you. I'm fine with white Russian. Uh, I, I'm a I'm a dude of a certain age. Of course, I drank white Russians at some point <laughs> for, for an extended period of time. Because my first thought was like, no, thank you. But I'm like, hmm, I, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I, I think it depends on how much you like just straight whiskey. I do and like then... it a lot. <laughs> I usually do it. It's either a, it's either like just a splash of water or a splash of soda. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it sort of goes into that wheelhouse. Um, and that is meant to kind of lengthen the the palate of the drink um, and provide a little bit more texture to it um why it's called a cowboy i have no idea maybe it's because it's got milk in it it's got cow i mean cow yeah yeah yep yep and whiskey means boy (laughs) (laughs) yes uh ed lines up a bunch of food and paints face toenails that's like all she does yeah real lack of ed in this episode why why can't she go on a existential journey yeah Oh, she'll get hers eventually. See, that's the last. Ep- that's the the last episode. Is what Ed did on the ship while everyone was gone. I'm surprised they have it. That although maybe that seems very Western of an mm. idea. A sort of what is? Hey, Ed gets left on the ship a lot. What ha- what happens when Ed's not supervised? What kind of mischief does she get into? Yeah. What's the uh, now? I just want like y- you know how uh, on the internet. I think there are people still do it. The Hourly comic day. Oh, comic. yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would love to see an hourly comic of Ed. <laughs> yes. What is oh. she up to? Oh, my God. I would love that. Yeah. So for movie recommendations this week, I was... Mainly inspired by the art direction in the in, in the planet of in the moon of Callisto. It's a very cold, uh, harsh environment. Uh, it's an all male or mostly male population, and it may and it got me thinking about Alien Three, uh, which has which has a lot of interesting facts about it uh, about mm-hmm. about its production uh, about its. Not good production. It's a. Fi- I think it's a very polarizing film. Within, if you're a fan of the Alien franchise, I think you're either like really on board with it, or you think it ruined the series, which I think both are true. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's get into it. And there's a and there's a and I think in you know we've talked about Ellen Ripley before, but I think especially in the first three movies, there there's sort of this not a path. But there is this interplay of feminine and masculine uh, to it. Yeah. So Alien 3 was released in 1992. It's directed by David Fincher, um, who is the director of Seven, Fight Club, uh, The Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, a, a lot of stuff. Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, the screenplay, uh, the there are a lot of scripts. Oh, <laughs> and there yes, are a lot, there are. And, and there were a lot of ideas for the sequel. And it took, I think... Four years from like initial first script to an approved script by Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, so the screenplay was written by David Geiler, G-I-L-E-R, Giller, uh, who was actually a producer on the Alien franchise from like the first one. He's He's been involved with Aliens from the beginning. Right. And then was also written by Walter Hill, who's the director of The Warriors, and Larry Ferguson, 
who is a writer of Highlander and the remake of Rollerball. <laughs> there is a version of it by William Gibson, the writer of Neuromancer, and they have actually recently taken his screenplay and made it into a comic adaptation, which I've been meaning to get my hands on and read. They also turned it into an audio drama. Okay, I didn't hear with, that. With, yeah, with, because uh, I believe, uh, jump your head a bit, he wrote a draft. It was in a space station. There was a lot of Cold War stuff. But mm-hmm. it mainly focused, uh, and sort of at the request request of Sigourney Weaver, who did not, she really didn't want to start another alien, especially right. since um, James Cameron was not attached. Uh, so this was going to focus a lot on Hicks and Bishop. Yes. So in the audio drama, we have Michael Bean and Lance Hendrickson reprising their roles. Ah, I did not know that. I will definitely have to check that out. Um, so like we said, it stars Sigourney Weaver. Um, also stars Charles Dutton, who I mainly know from Mimic, uh, one of the earlier uh, Guillermo del Toro movies. One of his, I think it's one of his first movies he made here in the States. And uh, Charles Dance, who is probably most famous now for playing Tywin Lannister. He will always be Benedict from Last Action Hero to me. <laughs> uh, here... <laughs> Well, here are some crazier facts. And I, a lot of this comes from a video from Matt McMuscles, uh, his video, Alien 3, What Happened. Uh, it's very entertaining. So if you want to know more, I suggest mm-hmm. checking that out. Oh, Matt. I love Matt. Matt, Matt, Matt McMuscles is a, is a good portion of my YouTube time. So the original director was Rennie Harlan, who um, I think for us, the biggest thing he did was uh, directed Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> Again. Uh, Three times in, like, four days, <laughs> Deep Blue Sea has come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like car accidents. It comes in threes. <laughs> Which, speaking um, of, Deep Blue Sea 3 coming to Netflix very <laughs> soon. Um, so he did not like the script changes um, to, where, to where when it was a prison planet. Because I think one draft was about how they were on a space station that was made of wood. And there yeah. were these monks who were anti-technology, which again played into the actual plot of Alien 3 is like, you're on a prison planet and there's an alien. Well, we don't have any weapons because we're on a prison planet. How do we stop this thing? I think elements of that came into play. But basically he's like, oh, I don't want to do this script. So he left two months before shooting was scheduled to start. Oh, no. Uh, so, yeah, that left Fincher not a, I think they said five. He Fincher got five weeks of prep time and that is stupidly short on on an indie feature the sort of rule of thumb is well if you're shooting you want to double you want to at least for your prep double the amount of time you're shooting so even on like a very very quick movie that's like three weeks you're getting you're supposed to at least get like six weeks so he had like he had nothing except you know sets were being built without his approval things so he you know he did his best to change things and to try to make it better. Uh, but there, there's a few elements in the way of it. Um, mainly, the, the main element being Fox. <laughs> of course. Um, so before, you know, Fincher hadn't even arrived. And the decision was that Michael Bean was not going to be in this movie. Uh, and there's this sort of this, he, Michael Bean tells a story where he, he knew they were shooting aliens. They actually made David Fincher... The studio made David Fincher call Michael Bean and say, hey, man, you're not going to be in the movie. And as you can imagine, Michael Bean was very upset because that's not like one that's not only disrespectful. It's also that's a lot of money he's missing out on. Yeah. But they Michael Bean is an alien three. They show a picture of him, uh, but they there's no set dollar amount. But Michael Bean forced them to like pay a lot of money mm-hmm. to to uh, to just show his picture. That's how pissed off he was. Um, so in Alien Three, we're back to just having one xenomorph. Uh, the alien face hugger was supposed to latch into an ox, but that shooting wise, it didn't work out. And so the studio suggested they change it to a dog. So it's like this very small, quick creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that also kind of didn't work out because. Some shots are an alien with, you know, some shots are like these tiny puppet things or maquettes or tiny baby CG. And some shots are a dude in an alien suit. 
Yeah. So it's very it's very mixed up. But there is footage. The only reason you need to go watch this video is because there is footage of like a whippet in an alien in a xenomorph costume. And it is the most adorable thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> because they try to get a train a dog to be a xenomorph. <laughs> Dogomorph. <laughs> Much chest burst. Wow. <laughs> Uh, oh, it's so cute. Um, but yeah, they really, Finch, Fincher hated it. He hated it so much. It was such a bad experience because, you know, you think here's your shot. It's his first feature film. And they just, you know, they they try to steamroll him on all of it to the point where Fox wanted reshoots. He left. He Fincher had nothing to do with editorial process. And I think at this point, there's now, there's the theatrical cut. And then I think in 2003, there is an assembly cut. Uh, because the theatrical cut got rid of a lot of Fincher's rewrites that mm-hmm. he had added that helped with more character development kind of moments. Um, but it's, ooh, it's 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 a weird big mess, especially for the third film in like a very big franchise. Yeah. That has, some might say has tainted the Alien franchise since then. Um, money would Money would say not. Yeah. Money would say I, it's doing just fine. I think it's been a while since I've seen Alien 3. Um, the last time I saw it, I enjoyed it for the most part. I think I I might be a bit of an Alien 3 apologist, but compared to the films that came afterwards, it is so much better. Yeah. Like, Alien Resurrection is... The script was written as a joke. <laughs> Go on. So, okay. The original version of Alien Resurrection was a script written by Joss Whedon. And it was, from my understanding, I will, I will have to do some research to confirm this, but it was written as effectively a parody of the Alien films. And then Fox was like, yeah, sure, we'll make it. And then they got, I think it's the director of Delicatessen, the French film, mm-hmm. uh, to shoot it, which is why there's some some certain actors in the film. And is, yeah. Is Jean Renault in it? In Resurrection or no? I don't believe so. I know Ron Perlman is in it. Ah, that, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ron yes. Perlman, Winona Ryder, Sigourney Weaver, Brad DeRiff. Uh, there's a couple other people that I don't know off the top of my head. Um, Alien Resurrection is a weird, is an especially weird story. Because like I said, it was written as a joke and they made it. <laughs> much, much like current reality. Mm-hmm. It was a joke that became real. Yes. Uh, the one kind of neat thing is that there's a shot where they're playing basketball on a space station. Because um, that's where like all of it happens. It happens on like this big space station where, spoilers, they're making aliens. Um, yeah, they're cloning aliens from the remains of Ripley from Alien 3. Um, but there's a shot where Sigourney Weaver has to sink a basket from, like, full court, and they got it on the first try. There's footage of her doing it. I think she did it backwards, too. I think she has to just throw the basketball over her head backwards from, like, full court, and she sinks it. It is the most amazing shot I've ever seen. <laughs> she does it at a Lakers game. She gets a million bucks. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, loves to Gordon Weaver. Yeah, she's great. She is um, awesome. And again, like going, my, my sort of final thoughts to sort of tie it in even more is you, so the first three Aliens movies, Ripley is very much this interplay of, or be, or became this interplay between like masculine and feminine sides of a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for Alien, the original script, the characters did not have like first names. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all given going by their last name. There what there wasn't like this person's a woman, this person's a male. Right. So you have that beginning, and I know there's some thought in the first Alien where it's Ripley. You know, they're all in these jumpsuits that's sort of androgynous until the very end when you know she has to she gets undressed, goes into uh, the spacesuit. Um, for or goes into hypersleep. It's like, oh, here is no, here is a. This is a woman. 
you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're, um, in Aliens, she is, you know, James is taking this action hero type mm -hmm. um, that Ripley has to become, reluctantly become. But then throughout the movie, you have these very motherly moments that she gets yes. to have with Newt on top of like Aliens is about two moms fighting. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I was just it, about it, to bring that up. Like the final conflict is Ripley, who is who is an actual mother. Like she has mm -hmm. a child and also is now Newt's adoptive mother to some degree versus the queen alien, which is obviously this gigantic monster that has birthed all these horrible, horrible, smaller monsters that have killed like this entire planet. And yeah, it's just those two facing off at the very end. Yeah. And it, in alien, in alien three, you have sort of uh, one, they, an all-male population. So she, you know, what we think of as the aspects of being feminine, you know, she has to shave her head. Those mm -hmm. are stripped from her. Um, but at the same time, she, she's she got an alien queen growing inside her. And so right. it's like this, you know, this perversion of, you know, this, this like, yeah, the, this twist on on motherhood. Right. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, all the Aliens movies, like, are straight up about, Rever uh, about reversals of like gender and femininity and masculine. So another another thread to to connect to this episode. But I uh, I don't know. Alien Three, watch it if you haven't in a while. Yeah. See see what you think, or if you yeah, haven't watched I, it at all. I mean, please don't let this be your first Alien movie. Yes. No. Start go, with the first one. Yeah. Go in order. Yeah. Um. I think I would probably say go watch like the assembly cut, or I think. They might actually call it the director's cut. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, go go watch that version for sure. Because um, I think they do keep the ox in it instead of Ooh, it being Ooh, that's dog. interesting. Yeah, I think they... I'm pretty sure they keep the, the ox aspect of it, so it's uh, not a tiny dog walking around in an alien costume. Again, thank you all for listening and joining us. We are... We're halfway... We're halfway yeah. through Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, we totally are. I mean, we'll we'll have the movie in there, but yes. we're but we're we're on the we are on the downslide. If you and thank we want to thank you all for joining us on this journey. If you want to talk to us, you can do so by writing to us at thinkingtohardpod at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter at thinkinganime. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Aaron J. Shelton mainly where I hang out online. Uh, I also do a podcast with Vince White called Kame House Party, where we're going through the entirety of Dragon Ball, uh, discussing episodes, and mixing it with improv comedy as we go along. Uh, Noah, where can the good people find you? So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kamenotaku. That's K-A-M-E-N-O-T-A-K-U. And uh, you can find me on a multitude of role-playing game podcasts. So I show up on the Technical Difficulties Gaming Podcast, the Role-Playing Exchange, RPPR, and uh, I also show up on the Best Power Brigade streams on Saturdays. Um, so go check those out if you are into... Uh, role-playing games and some cool storytelling. I'm into mm -hmm. both of those things. Yes. And I, and I do check them out. Uh, cool. You should too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so join us again in two weeks where we will be covering Session 14, Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, I am Aaron. I'm Noah. And we've been thinking too hard. Thank you.